Father, we come to you humbled this morning. God, humbled because we see our brokenness and our need for you, God, but yet with gratitude because every need that we have, God, you have supplied. God, you have fulfilled um, all that we need in the gospel or that you would come and live a perfect life, a life that we could not live, God, and die the death that we deserve. God, but that you wouldn't stay dead, but you would resurrect to new life. God, that we can have life in you because of all that you have done and of nothing that we have done. Lord, I pray that this morning, God, as we come to your word, God, that we would submit ourselves under the authority of your word. God, that our hearts would be fertile soil. Um, Lord, that our ears would be open to hear. Um, but God, that we would bank everything on your word not on our emotion, God, not on our circumstances, but your word. So Lord, this morning, guide us back to truth. God, where sin has led us astray, Lord, let us see clearly this morning from your word. So Lord, we love you. We ask that through the reading of your word, God, as we listen, God, as we apply your word to our lives, God, that our affections for you would only grow. And from that affection, God, that our lives would look different than they were this morning and into tomorrow. God, let us glorify you now. Lord, uh, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can have a seat. Well, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Cole Forrest. I get to serve on staff here at Cross uh, as a student minister. And so uh, I know Taylor and his family would greatly appreciate it if you'd be in prayer for them. Um, he actually did the service for his grandfather's funeral just a few days ago. Uh, and so it, man, when you think about the Burgess family, lift them up to the Lord. Um, the grief is hard. Um, but man, we have community and we have the Lord to bank on in the midst of all the difficulty that we have. And so pray for Taylor, pray for his family. Um, and we cannot wait to have him back with us uh, next week. Uh, but over this past season uh, of our church, what we've been doing is we've been walking through uh, the greatest sermon uh, ever preached. And that was the Sermon on the Mount. We just concluded that just a few weeks ago. Uh, and then we jumped right into the greatest prayer ever prayed, which is Jesus's high priestly prayer. And so throughout all of this, what we began to see is that the Christian life, the person who says that Jesus has done everything necessary to save them from their sin and will do whatever he says do and go wherever he says go, that our lives should look different. That they cannot look the same from everyone else that we encounter. That if someone is a Christian and someone is a non-Christian, to put them side by side, if they look the same, then something's not adding up, right? The sign of genuine repentance, genuine faith in Christ is a transformed life. And so we're gonna continue in that same thought today uh, as we look at our text this morning. And so I wanna invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter three. Dave read it all in its entirety just a few moments ago. We're gonna be in Colossians chapter three, verses one through 17. Hey y'all, it's a big chunk, so we're gonna have to hold on this morning, okay? Uh, but as we get there, uh, I wanna remind you of one of the greatest stories that's ever been told, and they've been movies about it, and it's just the simple story of Beauty and the Beast. Okay, typical you pastor fashion, gotta have my Disney illustration, okay? All right, so we, we open up and we have uh, this young prince who has this party and this old withered woman who he doesn't know at the time, who is an enchantress, uh, comes to this party and he does not receive her. And in his not receiving her and welcoming her, her, welcoming her into his party, he now has this curse of being made into a beast and all the people there to be turned into different things like a little cup named Chip, right? 
And so the, the way that this all works out is that there's this rose and petals will begin to fall over time. And the only way that he could be transformed back into a man is if he knew what genuine, true love was. And he, a time went on and people forgot about the beast, didn't know that he was even there. And then there would be this young woman named Belle who by misfortune would find herself in the castle there with him because her father had tried to take a rose from the garden to give to her. And so she changes places with her father and is now a slave there in the castle. But over time, uh, her affections for the beast begin to grow. And by the end of the story, what we come to see is that the beast experiences true love, how someone can love such a wretch like him. And it's in that love that he is then transformed from the beast to then be a man again. And so in our lives, we are also equally transformed by love, but not momentary, uh, but one that is for eternity. And that is a love that Christ has shown for us in the gospel. And so that's what we're gonna kind of land at is this whole idea of like, we have been transformed. And if we have been transformed, then we have this new way of life. We can't live as we once did, but now we must live in the newness of which God has made us to be. And that's where we find ourselves at this morning with our main idea being that from our identity in Christ, followers of Jesus will put to death the old self and put on the new self, which portrays Christ. So as we begin to jump into the text this morning, I wanna make sure that I, I kind of engage us in where we are. We're jumping into the third chapter of a letter written by Paul to the church at Colossae, whom he had never been with. He had never visited them, had never been with them, but yet he still in chapter one, we see that he prays for them continuously. He cares for these believers that he hasn't even had physical exchange with. He cares for them and now he's giving them a warning, but he's also gonna call them to action. And so with that being said, let's jump in Colossians chapter three. Let's start working through at verses one through four. If you'll read there with me. If then you have been raised with Christ, everybody say raised with Christ. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. Everybody say died. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That leads to our first point for this morning, and that is that our identity in Christ reorients our desires and decisions. Our identity in Christ reorients our desires and decisions. When we come to this place in this letter, Paul is making a clarifying statement here. The very first word in this text he uses is if. And with this, he's making this transition or really a distinction from the people that he's talking about at the end of chapter two. So if you look back with me at chapter two, verse 23, probably on the same page that you are in your scripture, it'll say this, Paul writes, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. So he's talking about false teaching that's going on in the church, saying hey, these things seem like they're good. They seem like they're right in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and a severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, he's combating against these false teachers who one, were promoting a false gospel that would have benefited themselves, benefited sin in their own life. He, uh, they were promoting asceticism, which is simply a lifestyle characterized by few possessions or luxuries. It is an attempt to focus one's life on religious or spiritual matters and not to be distracted by the things of this world. That sounds really good, does it not? But when we place that, a life says, hey, I have to be poor in order to follow Jesus. We have set something in place of the thing that we're supposed to worship. And that is not true and right religion. That is not the gospel. And so he's saying he's combating against even the, the thought of, I have to be poor in order to follow Jesus. 
But then he goes into beating your body or the, the physical body that it is actually the problem that sin is. As if our, our physical flesh is like what's encapsulating our, our spiritual, now our spiritual, oh, our physical body is the, is the capture of a spiritual experience. That's what he's pointing at. These people were beating their bodies for the sake of saying, hey, my body is the problem. If I can just get rid of my body, then I will be able to experience Christ in this new way. He's saying that is not the gospel either because God has made us both totally physically and spiritually. They work hand in hand. And so he's combating these false gospels. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, he brings forth their new identity that we have been raised with him, that the individual has acknowledged their sin before a holy God. We have acknowledged the messed upness that we are, that we have repented, we have turned away from our sin and believe the truth of the gospel. That Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection in our place is our only means by which we can have a relationship with God. So he's clarifying that here. That, oh, there's a false gospel being preached, but I guess what? There is a truth that we need to hold on to. And so to be raised with Christ really is resurrection language, right? To go from death to life. And that's what Paul uses in the same expressions in Ephesians chapter two, verses four through five. Paul writes this, but God, everybody say, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, Jesus made you alive. Jesus made us alive through his resurrection, taking what was previously dead, us being dead in the grave and has raised us now to new life in him. Being made alive through Christ's resurrection, we are to seek the things that are above where he is. This is a reorientation of our hearts to to look to him who is sitting at the right hand of God, which implies that he has the ultimate authority in all of our lives. And this reorientation of our hearts speaks to our desires. What do you long for? What do you desire above everything else? You see, if we have truly been raised with Christ, we see the unsearchable riches of his kindness and that draws us to him and to his ways. If we are a genuine follower of Jesus, we will want the things that God has prescribed for us. We will desire to go after him. Our love for him will only be stirred fuller. So this is the heart reorientation, which is really the work of him in our lives, right? We don't just naturally just have these desires just change. They don't happen like that. The Lord does this work in us, but Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with the heart. He moves it to the head and the hands. Look back at verse two. He says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of this world. See, this speaks to exactly what Dave preached on just a few weeks ago. There's this inner struggle that we have, that when we get to this place from the heart now to the hands, that we have this day-to-day decision-making, hey, will I follow Jesus or will I follow the way of the world or will I follow my flesh? Will I follow my sinful desires? There's this war being waged within us. And sometimes we don't see it as the war, but rather just something to sit back and chill about. You see, our hearts and our desires may want to follow Jesus, but the moment where there's a decision being to be made, we have to realize, which will I do? Which will I follow? And what we have to do is we have to come back to the scripture. We have to come back to where truth is. We have to, what we talk about, this is a biblical worldview. What this means is that every decision that we come into contact with, whatever it is in life, whether it's how I'm gonna live my life or what it's gonna be about, like if I'm even just gonna even, let's talk about be healthy and brush my teeth and take a shower, okay? I wanna do these things. I'm gonna do it to the glory of God, but I'm gonna focus it all through a biblical worldview. And so that means that's the lens by which I view everything. And when I'm doing that, I'm coming back to the truth. That means that my emotion doesn't lead my response. That means that my circumstances don't lead my response, but rather the scriptures lead my response. 
If my, if my emotions lead me in one way, but the scripture says something else, guess what? My emotion is wrong. It points me to the deeper issue that I need to deal with. And that is that I need to grapple with the truth of scripture. So we have to operate from a biblical world view. And as we filter everything through the lens of the gospel, y'all, we will be reminded of all that Christ has done for us. When we look through the scripture, it's not to be harassed by God saying, do this or don't do that. It's to see the love that God has for us. And it's from the love and affection that he has shown us that now that we will want to do the things that please him, that we will see that the things that he tells us not to do are not to hinder us. It is to prevent us from falling deeper into the mess that we created. It is God's grace in our lives. And we do this from this new identity. You see in verse three, Paul reassures the Colossians church that just as they have been raised with Christ, now they have been hidden with Christ in God. This is important. Because when we hide, what we want, we want to be safe, right? We think about playing hide and seek. I don't want them to find me. I'm safe from them coming to find me. Or think about an intruder coming into the house. I'm going to hide because I don't want them to find me and hurt me. In Christ, the wrath of God has been appeased. In Christ, no longer does God the Father see our sinful resume of messed upness that the wrath of God is coming for. He now sees the perfection of Christ. We have been hidden with him. And that is only true if we have trusted in the truth of the gospel. But we have been hidden with him. And this is Paul bookending action and identity. That we have been raised with Christ. Okay, we'll reorient your heart and now set your mind on the things. So your heart posture and your decisions, that's all bookended by who I am in Jesus. And it is with this that now we have the joy of following him, you guys. It should not be begrudging to follow Jesus. If, if it feels begrudging, then maybe we haven't really experienced the love that he has for us. It doesn't mean there's seasons that are harder than others. It doesn't mean that there's not seasons that are harder than others, but it will say it's like, man, it is a joy to follow Jesus because he's loved us so deeply and richly. You see, we battle with sin and we declare victory over it, not because we are strong, but because Jesus is stronger. So in this battle, in this fight, this inner turmoil, we, we look to this truth and we look to this hope that one day when Christ comes back, we will be with him. That's talking about that second coming that he has, that he will come and he will bring us with him. That whether we lay our bodies to rest right here, right now, somebody, man, God forbid, like we just, somebody falls out and we don't walk out of the room with you this morning. Well, guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're in the presence of the Lord. Or if we're able to go together to be with him, if he calls us home right now. There's this promise that we will be able to be with him, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. Paul is giving us all these things, his identity and promise that, man, the hard work that we're about to talk about here in a moment is worth it. It is worth it. See, the more that we revel in the gospel, we see all that Jesus has done for us on our behalf and our affections for him should grow. Our love for him should be stronger. We should desire nothing more than to spend time and be with him. You see, I think about like focusing these things through a biblical worldview, right? So if I wanna love Jesus, I wanna follow Jesus, uh, I think about this and how it comes to our decisions. My heart has been reoriented to want the things of God. Now I'm faced with a decision. And one of the decisions that I think about is like, who do I date, right? And so like, if you're married in the room, you went through a process of dating, maybe you're in a dating relationship now, uh, whatever it may be, but you, you have a process by which you look at people, right? You wanna figure out who you're going to date. You, you think about good things, right? You think, are they trustworthy? Are they safe? Do they listen? Are they caring? Do, they, do we like the same things? And those things are all good things, are they not? They're good qualities that we should desire. Post-Christ, those things are secondary to do they love Jesus? 
No, those things are still good and we should still seek those things out. But guess what? They don't know Jesus, then they're off the list. That is filtering through a biblical worldview. To say that we're a Christian and not filter ourselves through a biblical worldview and make those decisions is to say, I'm gonna be a disobedient to Christ because what feels good is better than what he says. Y'all, we have to filter our entire lives through the biblical worldview that he has called us to because his way is better than our way. You see, we filter everything through his word. We come back to his word. And because of Jesus, our hearts have been reoriented to the love of Christ. And because of that, our decisions and the framework that we make for decisions through is gonna focus back on him. So Paul furthers this reality though uh, in the remaining verses of our passage this morning, that from identity, we're called to action. And so for the rest of the time, y'all, we're gonna be talking about, man, how do we do this? What does it look like for us to live for Jesus, this new life that he has given us? How do we walk this out? And so let's look at Colossians chapter three, verses five through nine. He says, put to death. Everybody say, put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming because of sin. Okay, everybody get that? In these you too once walked when we were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Point number two for us this morning is that the old self must die. The old self must die. See, Paul here is starting to call us to an active role in our sanctification here. He moves from the indicative talking about or describing action to now the imperative to take action. The action that we are to do to put into place in our lives is to murder sin. Let's call it for what it is. Murder sin, kill sin, put what is earthly away from you. Let it be vanquished in our lives. And he lists off a short list, not super exhaustive, but he lists off things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. You see, it's easy for us to look at this list and be like, okay, all right, I hear it, I've heard it a thousand times. And not really feel the gravity of sin. But Paul here is talking about each part of this list, this, this small list that he's given us in regards to chapter two, verse 23. That all of these, those false things that they were teaching in uh, the church at Colossae, the things that were going on, they were what? They were, they were not helping them in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so now he's pushing back even against that. See, in our lives, y'all, we are inundated with great amounts of ideas, perspectives, truth claims, and the climate of our culture. This in many ways has lullabied many believers to sleep, but, but that may not be so for us. Let us not be lullabied to sleep by the weather and how things go in our culture. You see, sin has been taken lightly as a feather when in reality, it is the boulder that crushes us. We take it and we shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, we say, hey, my practical life is more important than actually following Jesus. Y'all, that is just straight disobedience. To say practical is gonna be better than to, than to follow Jesus, that is disobedience. Our culture says, hey, do whatever is gonna be good for you. That The Lord knows what's best for me. He's given us that in his word. To say, hey, I'm gonna follow whatever it seems right rather than God's word is just simple disobedience. You see, we live in a world that rejoices over sexual sin and slandering others for the sake of self-gain. 
We have many believers have compromised the truth for what feels right or what seems right. And we haven't seen the gravity or the weight of our sin. When we think about this, I think about uh, making dinner. Okay, one of the things that I've enjoyed making, uh, some of our staff members can attest to how good they are, so I'm not a terrible cook, okay, uh, are these crab wontons, okay, like I'm, I'm, all, I'm here for it. Uh, and so one of the things I put in those crab wontons is green onion, and so I chopped that green onion. But all of us have this experience, if you cook, uh, where you take the knife out and you're cutting meat or vegetables or whatever it may be, and, and it fulfills the purpose, right? It, the, the knife coming and cutting through the meat or cutting the vegetable, it fulfills the purpose, and we use it over and over and over and over again. And, and what happens is we can become lullabied to sleep to the fact that the knife is still sharp and what happens is we cut ourselves. It's like a couple of weeks ago, we're having our oyster roast and I stabbed myself with the oyster knife because I'm not paying attention. We forget that sin destroys. We, for, we forget that sin has made our lives messy. We forget the damage that has been caused. And y'all, when we look back hindsight 2020, we can actually see the mess that it's created. So this is God and Paul calling us to be proactive. And don't forget the gravity of sin. Don't forget that it is harmful and hurts you. John Owen said it best, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's just the reality. And living in unrepentant sin is a matter of the old self. And guess what? Christ says that is done away with. Paul writes in Romans chapter six, verse six, he says, we know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Jesus has done the work to bring us out of our bondage to sin. Now that in this freedom that we had no longer have sin as our captive or as our captor, will we continue to make sin our master? That's the question we must ask ourselves. We have been freed from this bondage. Now, will we still allow it with the jail cell being opened to just sit in the cell? Will we continue in that way? And this is not an easy task though. Putting de to death sin in our lives is not easy because it's a battle. The war wages within us. But this is why in the first four verses of this chapter, Paul reminds us of our identity in Christ, y'all. It is from identity that we are moved to action. It's not just a call to do, but it's a call that says it's been done. That's what we bank on. See, in killing what is earthly inside of us, we are living out the common understanding that Jesus is better than everything. He's better than everything. Every desire that you think will be fulfilled through sin, guess what? Jesus fulfills it to the utmost, to the perfection. It's in those moments where we think that things will fulfill. It's like the no like biting our legs and we go to scratch them and five minutes later, we're scratching again. Like, let's be real, I hate the gnats and those CMs, y'all, it's terrible. But that's the reality. When we think sin will fulfill, it's like having to go back and constantly try to do it and fix it. But the sin won't, won't fix it. Jesus is the only one who can. And as we are putting to death what is earthly in us, this sin, it's important for us to remember that we are not doing this alone. You can't do it on your own. If you try to do it on your own, you're going to fail. We will fall on our face. Not in humility, but from stumbling and falling. And that's why Jesus tells us about this Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he himself, and what he will do in our lives. In John 16, eight, he says this, and when he, being the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. He is a member of the Trinity, let's get that clear. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. God is going to show you the sin within you. 
even in the moments where we feel like, hey, I'm good. And the Holy Spirit, we ask him to, he's going to show us. Think that he won't, because he will. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to see the sin within who we are. And not only does the Spirit convict us of sin, but he also empowers us to put it to death. Think back to Acts 1.8, the key verse uh, of the book of Acts. He says, but you will receive power. Everybody say power. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, we are empowered by the Spirit to live out the gospel, to be witnesses. And a part of being witnesses is following Jesus and being obedient to his commands and knowing that what he says is best. Our actions will portray Jesus. If our actions don't portray Jesus, but our words do, people don't care about that. That's fake. Our actions and our thoughts and our emotions will all be transformed by the power of the Spirit in our lives. And in our killing of sin, our testimony is showing that we are surrendering everything to Jesus. His call is pick up your cross, come and die. Are we willing to lay it all down and say Jesus is worth every amount of our lives? And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are convicted of sin and we turn from it and thus killing it in our own lives. But there's this promise I think that we can sometimes miss. And instead, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It can be misquoted all over the place. Like people say like, God won't give you too much to handle, but guess what? Like God gives you more than handle because he's the one you gotta lean on. And so in this passage, he's not talking about like your circumstances. He's just talking about, he's talking about the temptation itself, okay? So let's get that clear before we get in this. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is all about providing for his people. He's got it. He's like, here's the way. You don't have to sin. Here's the decision. We set our hearts. Now we're going to set our minds. Well, guess what? Here's the way out. Follow me right here. There's no temptation. We have this promise. So each of us can be tempted by sin, but yet God, God's grace, y'all, we can resist it and walk in obedience, which is exactly where Paul is heading in verse 10. So let's continue reading in Colossians 3, verse 10. And he's combating here the old self. He says, from the old self now to the new, he says, and put on then the new self, which is being renewed in a knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Something to notice here is that Paul isn't just giving the statement, just stop sinning. Just stop it. But that's not what he's saying. He's actually going to move us to action, that we can't be neutral in this battle, but rather we must take offense and go after it. He says, put on the new self. And when I think about putting on this new self and taking off the old self, putting it to death, I think about replacement, right? It's not just don't do, but he's saying, hey, in place of that, now put this on. 
I think about that. I have a new puppy. He's 16 weeks old, and I'm going to tell you, he is the cutest little thing in the whole world, okay? He finally don't pee or poop in the house. Praise be to God, okay? Um, but in puppy stage, we all know, puppies like to put your hand in their mouth, and they like to bite it, right? They like want it for attention or for play or whatever it may be, but they, they try, tend to try and bite your hands. And so you say, no, you don't want them to do that. And so what do you do? You replace it with like a chew toy. You replace it with what is good for them and what is good for you, right? That's a replacement, taking what is wrong and putting in what is right. And that's exactly what Paul is pointing us to. That's what God is trying to get us to understand. That in this new identity, this old self is gone, this new self has come. There is a replacement that takes place. It's not just don't do, it's now, hey, follow me. Let me show you the way of obedience. And so in the Christian life, God doesn't call us to simply stop sinning, but he calls us to walk in the freedom that he has given us through putting on this new self. And the key part of this new self is point three, and that's that the new self emulates Christ. The new self emulates Christ. As we look at this passage more and more, we see that God is calling us to be a transformed people, not just a good people, not just a church people. God is calling us to be a transformed people. And we are to be living out our new identity in Christ that is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator. Jesus is the one who created us, Colossians chapter one. And now we're being renewed in his image, that we would bear his image in that way. And so knowledge is a mind thing, and it's our understanding of who God is that Paul references this renewal. And we see this same concept in Romans chapter 12, verse two. He says, do not be conformed. Everybody say conformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, God has revealed through the Bible what all that we need for life and godliness. And it's through our studies of the scripture that God's going to teach us all that pleases him and what we need and what we don't need. Like God reveals himself to us in his word. And through that, we love him all the more. See, this week I was reading, uh, uh, um, it was a, an article, but it was really just, it was a, um, golly, a research article, okay? Uh, and and in the, within this article, it talked about student ministry in particular. So sixth through 12th grade. Uh, and it was just through the, they did a global one, but it was paying really attention to the United States one. Uh, and throughout the, the, those who had been questionnaired or questioned, uh, basically there was only about 56% said that they were a Christian, okay? The part that burdened me was that from that 50%, only 8% actually held to Christian values and beliefs. Therefore, other than the 8%, they're not followers of Jesus. And so that included things like that Jesus is the only way, that they would practice spiritual discipline. So just reading the Bible once a week or praying once a week, 8%, that is insane, y'all. If we are followers of Jesus, the word is what feeds us. The word is what we lean into. The word is where God reveals more of who he is, y'all. It is his special revelation to us. We see who he is, his magnitude in general revelation, in creation, but y'all, he reveals himself to us in his word. How audacious of us if we say that we are a follower of Jesus, that we would not pick up his word who reveals more of who he is. We must know him and to know him is to love him. And that's where we get to this place of like, as God reveals these things to us in scripture, the point of our sanctification isn't to be a good person. It's not to be a church going person. 
it's to look more and more like Jesus until we see him face to face. Because to become the other is to become a puffed up religious punk, to say it lightly, okay? Like that, that's what happens. And so that's why we have to see in verse 11, Paul makes sure that we know that we are seeking to follow after Christ, that we do this in unity with other believers. He says that our heritage and our status don't matter. He says in verse 11, here there are no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. There's no barriers. All of us have unity, not because of where we come from or what we have, but because of Christ. We don't wanna pull that out of context, but this is what he's, he's literally talking about unity. That unity that we have to follow after him. Because we are united with Christ, we can pursue putting on the character qualities of Christ. And this new self that Paul is writing about is in opposition to the old self. They're fighting against one another. And then this new self that we have become through Christ is going to look like him. And so let's read verses 12 through 15 again. He says, put on then as God chosen, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. The key to this point was talking about that we emulate Christ, that this new self emulates Christ. And so let's take a moment and see how does Christ emulate or how do we emulate Christ in these characteristics? Because this is pointing us to his character. And so he says, compassionate hearts. Think about Luke 19, 10. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is from the story of Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, who's an outcast, who was climbing a tree in order just to get a glimpse of Jesus. To which Jesus responds and says, come down Zacchaeus, I must go and eat at your house today. He cared for the outcast. But we also see this in Matthew 9, 36 where the crowds are coming and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. He cares for those who no one else cares for or he sees the needs of others and fulfills them. He has compassion for others. He says, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. In Romans 2 verse four, he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, to lead you to repentance. Y'all, we all deserve from the moment of conception to be eternally distanced from God. And that's the reality. But, but in this reality, God has given us grace to live this life. And it is his patience and his kindness that allows us to come to him even now. We don't deserve this. None of us do. And if we think we do, then we got it wrong. It's only by God's grace that we can come to him. He has shown us kindness and mercy and meekness and patience. Think about your, if for the believer, think about your story with Christ. Think about the patience that he had with you. How to look back on your life. Now, whether if you were young or if you're, you came to faith later in life, you see his kindness. You see him pointing you to him in different moments throughout your life. Maybe how you didn't die in that car wreck so that now today you're, you get to be with him for eternity where before you wouldn't have. God shows kindness to his people. 
And then he moves on. He says, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So also you must forgive. One of my favorite passages, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Everybody say faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God has forgiven us in the gospel. Therefore, forgiveness to others, y'all, is not an option. It's not a, oh, I'll get there whenever I kind of feel like it. But rather, like, forgiveness is the starting place. It's not the ending place. It's not, I'm gonna do all these things, and then eventually I'll forgive them. It's forgiveness and then all those things. You see, it is in our experience of Christ's forgiveness for us that we will forgive other people, no matter the cost. That's hard work. I don't know about you, but I can't do that on my own. Bump those people. It is only through experiencing the forgiveness of Christ that we can forgive other people. And it's in the same way that now he says to have love. And then we look at that, we see in 1 John 4, verses seven through 11, he says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, so we also ought to love one another. Y'all, it's all about emulating Christ. Because unless we have experienced that from him, we cannot give it to others. Every part that we try to give to others that is lacking from him is fractured. It will always need repair. It will never be complete. It's only in Christ that we see this type of love. And then lastly, he says that we would have peace, peace in our hearts and in our minds that we would have this peace and this unity among us, that we would hold tight to sound doctrine, that we would hold the gospel in the core of, of salvation and Christianity. We say, nothing can take this. This is the truth and we will not budge. Just like Taylor talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's not this unity where it says, okay, you have, your, you have your thoughts and I have my thoughts and we just choose not to talk about it. It's a unity and a peace that goes deeper than anything else that we can have in this life, that we'd have peace through vertically through us and God, but then that peace would exude to us with other people horizontally. See, each of these characteristics start in the heart and we are at the heart and they are at the heart of who Christ is. Jesus simply doesn't emulate these characteristics, y'all. He is them. He shows us the fullness of God, Colossians chapter one. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell and that's where we see who he is. And the scriptures tell us about who he is and how this new self is going to be renewed after his image and that we must put on this new self as God changes our hearts. He changes us, our hearts in an instant, but then it takes a lifetime for us to see its completion. He is calling us to move and therefore our affections for Christ will grow as we know more of who he is. So our obedience will be to put on the new self as we repent and we are renewed in the image of Christ. See, in Colossians 3, 16 through 17, Paul continues on. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our fourth point this morning is that we live our lives for the glory of God. We live our lives for the glory of God. 
Paul now wraps up this thought by speaking to how we live our lives in community with one another. No matter what's going on in our life, we live in community with other believers. Putting off the old self and putting on the new self takes intentionality from our brothers and sisters around us who are willing to walk alongside us. If we are going to walk alongside each other, that means that we must be vulnerable. We must be honest. We must be authentic. All the buzzwords for Gen Z. But this is who we must be. We must care for one another to walk alongside each other. If we try to do this on our own, y'all, we're gonna fall flat on our face because you have blind spots, I have blind spots. And without the work of the spirit in our lives and brothers and sisters around us to kind of call things out, y'all, we're just gonna live in sin. And that's not what God calls us to. God calls us to turn from that. I mean, notice here, this is a mutual relationship. It's not just a hierarchy of someone pointing down saying, you did this wrong, you did this right, da, 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 da. It's a mutual relationship. The word is to dwell in us richly, so as to teach and admonish one another. It's mutual. It goes back and forth. It's good for the both, everyone that is involved. So we encourage one another. We hold one another accountable. We sing with one another. What a joy it is to hear the people of God sing the praises of God this morning. And then we are also thankful alongside one another. It takes the body. It takes community. You can't do it on your own. And when I think about that, I think about this tabletop game called Shoot the Moon. Anybody ever heard of that one? Shoot the Moon? It's okay. Nobody did in the first service either. So, um, so I'll explain it to you. So it's this little game, and you've got two arms and a ball, and it's going uphill, and there's little holes that you're trying to get the ball into. And so as you move the, the arms of this mechanism in and out, it makes the ball go faster, slower, drops the ball, makes it go up, okay? Without one arm, the ball's never gonna move at all. With both arms working in opposition to one another, the ball's gonna drop before it gets to its goal. If I move them too fast, the ball's gonna fall off and it's never actually going to work. In the same way, we need one another. We need all of the body working together in order for us to live life as God has called us to live. You can't try to do it on your own because if you do, you're just gonna fail. We're all gonna fail. It's not like a, somebody up here is gonna say it and we're gonna all be perfect. Like everybody who steps on this stage is messed up and we all need God's grace. And so we, we need each other. That's why a community group is important. That's why Bible studies are important. Y'all, uh, my plea, man, go get, if you're not in a Bible, uh, if you're not in a community group, man, mark that next steps card today and go take it out there. Because you can't follow Jesus on your own. And that's just the reality and the truth. Because we see it in practice as well. See, now as we close out this passage, though, what we see a familiar verse that you've probably grown up around in church, right? He says, verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything that we do isn't about us. It's about God. It's about giving him glory. Whether, uh, whether it's in work or it's in our personal devotion, the anthem remains the same. I will glorify God. I want my life to represent him and I want people to see my life that they don't see Cole, they see Jesus. That's what it means for us to live a life that glorifies him, is that people see him. And in their seeing, guess what? We have the opportunity to share the truth of the gospel that our actions will not save, but the reality and the truth of Jesus in our place every time because his blood poured out for us. So now we get to this place where we ask, well, what does this mean for me, right? 
for the non-believer, if you say, hey, I'm not a believer, man, I'm just here for whatever reason, and you're just like, hey, I'm here. <laughs> that word if. If then you have been raised with Christ. If there's no certainty in your life this morning that you've been raised with Christ, my plea for you this morning is to submit to the Lord Jesus, to turn from your sin and believe that he has done everything necessary to save you from your sin. And that in his death and resurrection, you can have new life in him. So this morning, make that if, make it a since. If then you have been raised with Christ, it could now be since you have been raised with Christ. There's assurance there. And then for all of us, but now like for, if you're a follower of Jesus, walking with Jesus in the room, the plea for you this morning is to put off and to put on, to kill sin and to live for Christ, but to submit ourselves to God's word to not be swayed back and forth by whatever is going on in and around us, but to say, this is truth and I will submit myself and my life to it. And then take that daily practice of repenting and believing in the gospel. Write that on your mirror in your bathroom and an expert marker, of course. What Jesus has done for you and be reminded of that truth because it's only from that truth that we can put to death the old self and live in this new self that God has made us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, that your word is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, that where our words from a stage, um, Lord, can so easily fall short. Um, God, that your word is perfect and true and powerful, and we can bank on it. So Lord, I pray, God, that as we wrestle with all that you've done for us, God, and all that you call us to. God, that we would find rest, as Monica said this morning, God, in the goodness of the gospel. Lord, that you have laid it all out for us. Lord, we had nothing to offer. You gave us everything. So Lord, I pray that you would empower us through your spirit, God, to put to death the old self and to live in this new self that you have made us to be. God, that we would be active in our sanctification. God, that we would grow more and more to be like your son day in and day out. God, that we wouldn't be complacent, but that we would trust you. I said, Lord, now as we remember what you've done for us in the gospel, Lord, as we're coming to this place of communion, God, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts to see the sin that's there. God, the things that we're blind to. God, the sin that so easily entangles us. God, reveal that to us now. And God, as you reveal that, God, let us see your love and your patience and your kindness for us. Lord, as you have laid down your life for these sins. God, that no more do we have to take the wrath of God, but we are hidden with you in Christ. Help us to believe that and to receive that good news this morning. God, that we would come to the table, Lord, with repentant hearts and gratitude for all that you've done for us. So Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.